0: Carol Zerniel, who is the executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation, serves not only as the chairman of the board of the National Council on Aging, but is also a nationally known gerontologist, spends a lot of time dealing with the kinds of issues we talk about here on Caregiver SOS On Air. And coming up, we have a really interesting guest. This is the first for the show woman who is diagnosed with dementia, will be joining us in a few minutes, Gerda Saunders.
2: Yes, and I'm fascinated with Gerda and her work. She's actually written a book uh, trying to preserve her memories. And, you know, this is what's new in Alzheimer's is that people with the disease are becoming their own spokespersons.
0: And partly because we're diagnosing earlier and
2: earlier. Well, no, I think it's because we're not hiding people um, anymore. So her book, Memories Last Breath, you know, it just it already conjures up everything that, you know, she's having to go through. So we're looking forward to talking with her. We'll talk to
0: her in a couple of minutes. I want to ask you, because you said to me right before the show, ask me, why do women retire? shortly after age 50.
2: Well, you know, that is an interesting phenomenon, and it's not because they're healthy, wealthy, and wise. Um, that would not be the case. So there's a, a growing phenomenon. It's not new that, you know, many women are leave the workforce over the age of 50 because they're caregivers, um, and they're caregivers to their spouses, their children. This article in Next Avenue is saying, and more frequently their parents, I would also add their grandchildren. There are a lot of grandparents now that are getting primary responsibility for their grandchildren as well, but, you know, the bottom line is that 50% of women um, don't really get a choice. Their choose their choice is to be a good mother, a good daughter, or a good employee. Um, and good employee doesn't always carry the most weight.
0: In fact, the guest we talked to last week uh, cared for her mother and then her husband who had dementia. And she mentioned on the show that she had to retire.
2: Well, and you know the same thing happened to my sister. She you know took quit her job to take after to take care of my mother and. You know, she wanted to work part-time, but her skill set was such that people were very suspicious. Why are you only wanting to work part-time? Because she'd been a professional, you know, in, in design, in aircraft and helicopter design. Um, and so what, what it, <laughs> working in the local bookstore just didn't seem like something that they would want to hire her to do. Um, but then trying to get a 40, you know, you, when you're dealing with a mother who has Alzheimer's and a father who is in his 80s, you can't work 40 hours a week. There are way too many medical appointments.
0: The demands at their home are unbelievable.
2: Right. And so, you know, we're really looking at uh, this lack of choice, um, and are we really being fair? uh, Because is is it fair or just that there's this expectation in the United States that we're going to quit our jobs? Um, And and we've said it many times that a woman who quits her job to be a caregiver gives up about $325,000 in earnings and retirement income.
0: There ought to be compensation for that work.
2: Well, there, you know, I would agree with you. Because they take a burden you. off
0: the healthcare care system.
2: That's right. That's right. Um, and, you know, we're sort of guilted into it. So uh, if you're interested in these kinds of issues on our Caregiver Teleconnection later this month in August, you can go to caregiverteleconnection.org and find the session I'm leading on caregiving as a human rights issue.
0: Oh, that's cool.
2: So check it out.
0: We'll have to do that. I may be a secret silent listener.
2: You can even speak up. Happy to have you participate. All
0: right, Carol, I'm looking you right in your beady brown eyes, and here's the question. Well, they're more greenish than brown. What is it? Do you ever lie to your doctor?
2: Well... <laughs> I think all of us, don't all of us lie to our doctor or fudge just a little bit? But the question is, when we do that, is that a good thing to do? Should we be lying to our doctor? Now, you do a show with Dr. Robin Eickhoff every week, right? and she's a well-med physician. What would she say?
0: She'd say, you need to tell me everything. It doesn't go anywhere else, but it helps me diagnose and treat you and manage your care.
2: Well, and she's probably heard everything before, right? Are we well, going to surprise she's heard her? heard it all.
0: No, but the other question I often ask physicians when we have them, providers, I'll say to them, uh, rule of thumb, smokers, drinkers all lie about how much they smoke and drink. And the answer is every one of them.
2: Every one of them. Well, and that's, again, from Next Avenue. They had the the five lies that women should not tell their doctors. Um, And one of them was about the smoking and the drinking. You know, if you smoke and you drink, just fess up. I mean, if you do it, it can have an impact. You know, you might get a little lecture. You probably will, but... You know, you also might maybe get some good... Maybe a cigarette
0: a week, maybe. You know, <laughs> yeah,
2: but you're also um, going to get some good insight into what could happen. You know, what, you, there's, you make choices. We all make choices, yes. and smoking and drinking is a choice. So, you know, the lie, I think I, I'm probably guilty of the one... I, yeah, I took all of my medications... Eh, well, you know, those calcium vitamins are so big, they're like horse pills, um, and I'm not that wild about them. And so sometimes I say, yes, I'm taking them when I'm not, and and sometimes I actually tell the truth and say, yeah, I'm not doing such a great job on that.
0: Occasionally, and it depends on the brand, uh, I occasionally take potassium pills prescribed by my doctor, uh, and there's one brand that you cannot possibly swallow. There
2: you go. See, And, and then you're like... You tell the truth about that. I can't swallow it. See, and we should tell the truth. But
0: I talked to the pharmacist, and there is another manufacturer who makes a little round, smooth pill that goes down like nothing. And
2: that's the. In talking to your pharmacist, talking to your doctor is a good. um, It's a good strategy. So, lie number two that women are, or anybody tells, is I'm not taking anything else. So we're not talking about the (laughs) the tea, the herbal teas that we're drinking or the health food vitamins that we picked up. Or the
0: supplements. Or the
2: supplements or any of that. When... You know, there is an interaction. Some of those supplements, like if you're on Coumadin, you know, with a blood thinner and you're taking something else, it could also be a blood thinner and you could be getting your blood a little too thin um, and it can cause problems. So, you know, when you go into your doctor, you really need to to go ahead and just say everything that you're taking, whether it's something that your best friend read online, you know, like um, what is it? Oh, coconut, you know, coconut milk is the best thing you know you talk about the coconut milk
0: if you just join us you're listening to giver sos on air i'm ron aaron along with carol Zerniel on 9:30 a.m the answer every once in a while some fad will come along like the coconut milk uh, that people just jump on that's right a- and if they talk to their doctors about it they might get the real skinny on it
2: that's right and i know that dr eikhoff is great when talking about all those extra things so we said about smoking and drinking lie number four is everything's good in the bedroom um, if you don't talk about your sex life and what's going on, you know there are STDs out there. There are things that can help you, um, and so it's better just to go ahead and talk about what's not working in your sex life because your doctor does know about that, and,
0: and she can help you. That's
2: right. Mary knows where babies come from and all that good stuff. <laughs> exactly. Um, and uh, line number five, <laughs> which all of us probably do, is I eat right and exercise <laughs> regularly. All of us have great diets and exercise. See, I tend to, to be truthful about the exercise because I do get a fair amount. So the eating is probably where I'm fudging just a little, and it's not about fudge. But I do eat a fair number of French fries. I still like well, them. You don't.
0: carry the McDonald's cup around with you sitting know, right here I in the studio. <laughs> I
2: know. If you can see it, area, This water, the logo. there's water because I finished the – I usually have tea, but I did have a soft drink today. So what is that's funny, where I fudge.
0: I love the giant Whataburger cups. And uh, so the... <laughs> I'll get a cup of water and, and carry it around. And I'll say to people, because it's almost like you feel guilty, it's just water. It's isn't? just water. It's yeah. just a cup. I like the yeah. cup. I like the cup. And I'm carrying the logo around, so they don't care what I'm drinking, right?
2: Yeah. Well, as my husband says, you know, uh, vodka in a Starbucks mug tastes just the same.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to ask how he knows that. So next question. <laughs> how do we keep long-term care? from taking us into bankruptcy? And the answer is we don't.
2: Well, the answer is we don't. And our friend Richard Eisenberg has been writing about this. Again, um, you know, the cost of long-term care. So a 65-year-old today can expect, if he's a man, to pay $138,000 in long-term care costs and a woman can expect to pay 182000 Because she so, lives longer. Because she lives longer. So are we ready to pay for that? No. You got that all saved up no. there, Ron? No, I'm not. Yeah. So, you know, there's really, we really, really have to do some work. You know, the health care is The acute care bill. That's what we were just dealing with. It did not pass. That was acute care. That is a cakewalk compared to long-term care, you know, for the number of people who are turning 65 every day, 10,000, the boomers. I mean, it's huge. And so, you know, and the number one thing that can bankrupt you is it's those medical costs and the long-term care costs. Now,
0: last week you mentioned that the World Congress on Aging that you attended, uh, there are predictions that the person and people who will live to 150 have already been born. As those numbers creep up,
2: you sure hope they're not in a, in a nursing facility, right? Who's yeah, you don't care do for that, them? you know. And the, and there are things that we could do. Like um, I missed an, an opportunity to enroll in long term care because it was a choice, and I missed the deadline. And so one of the recommendations is for organizations that offer long term care is auto enroll people and then let them opt out because so many of us need that long term care coverage. And that's a nice incentive. Um, another one is to let you remove money from your 401K with no penalty if you're buying a long-term care policy. So that would be an incentive. Um, and then the last one is to go ahead and let that your Medicare pay for some respite, pay for some days off, pay for a, a more long-term care than it currently does. Um, and we've just got to get – we have to have new policies.
0: Well, we can't get Congress to agree on anything. Where is that going to happen?
2: Well, I, I think it's going to happen. It's all, you know, this, Congress is about political will. And so um, the political will has to come about. And if all of the caregivers listening today and all of their friends that have caregivers, if we rose up as caregivers and demanded a changes in long-term care, we would have critical mass. Trust me.
0: That's 64 million.
2: Yep. Critical mass.
0: See, big number. Yep. Carol Zernio, Ron Aaron. Caregiver SOS on air. In just a moment we're going to talk with a woman already diagnosed with dementia. Gerda Saunders joins us. She's written a book about it and we're going to talk with her right here on Caregiver SOS on air. At 9.30am the answer. By the way, podcasts of all of our programs are available and you can find them on iTunes at no cost if you want to sign up for Caregiver SOS on air. (laughs) It's hard to believe, but this all began in the year 2010.
3: Has it really been that long that we've been together? Dr. Robin
0: Eickhoff, Ron Aaron, WellMed Radio.
3: What a terrific ride it's been.
0: And since then, and continuing, we have talked about
3: everything. We've talked about medical issues, we've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on.
0: You name a disease, and we've covered it with answers for people who have it aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones. Well, we so much appreciate you sticking with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernil, and as we have been promising, uh, we are joined by Herta Saunders, whose book, Memory's Last Breath, uh, is available, and it is a book that deals with her own personal story, diagnosed with dementia, living with dementia, and trying to preserve uh, what she has now and share that with others Uh, as time goes on. She grew up in South Africa, earned a B.S. in math and chemistry from the University of Pretoria, and as we talk with her uh, today on our Caregiver SOS, uh, on our hotline uh, throughout the interview, we'll share more about her background. Needless to say, she has an incredible education, very talented professional, and we now have a chance uh, to talk with her about uh, her own personal experience. Herta, thanks for joining us.
4: Thank you so much. Um, I'm very pleased to speak with you, and I just want to say thank you for the wonderful work that you do.
0: Well, we appreciate you being willing to come on uh, because we don't get a chance to talk with folks very often who have been diagnosed with a microvascular disease that has uh, led to dementia. And in your case, talk a bit about uh, how that diagnosis came about uh, and and what you were thinking at the time.
4: I had signs of something being wrong with my memory for quite some years before my husband and I decided that it might be a good idea to get a diagnosis. Um, and also my mother had dementia, um, so the idea that it could be something like that was not completely out of my mind. But I did wonder whether um, whether there was any point um, in having a diagnosis, because. Um, there are some um, memory loss um, diseases that that I think there's some medication for. Although I think it seems to me that the long-term difference that it makes is not very big. And I I am just I was just afraid of getting into some cycle of medical treatment where you suddenly you in and you can't get out. And so that's that was a worry for me. Um, before getting the diagnosis. But um, my husband and I then spoke to our uh, family doctor, and she assured us that we could stop (laughs) with us any time we wanted to. And so she set up the MRI appointment first, um, and that then showed the lesions uh, on my brain from uh, microvascular disease, which is a clogging of the little tiny little blood vessels um, in my brain. Um, so then I, I, they, I did not hear the word dementia yet um, until I we had gone for neuropsychological evaluation. And when that came back, um, at my, my neuropsychologist uh, actually used the word dementing. She said, it seems you are dementing. It was just a strange moment um, because I'd not known um, dementia to have a verb form, and um, and it made it feel it made it uh, actually it, it it was funny to me that she used that word not because I, I know I I've I just read an article about you know how you should refer to people with dementia and saying that they are dementing is not at all encouraged um, but. My doctor apparently, um, you know, did not know that. But at the moment, it just struck me funny. And I think as sometimes as people react in, in shock or so, I just really felt like I wanted to laugh um, because of the word. But in any case, then, you know, reality sets in and you start confronting the fact that your future is now different than you thought it would be. So, But I never was totally bowled over or um, completely depressed or anything like that because I had, in a way, I think, prepared myself for it.
2: Well, I, I I must admit when you said that your doctor referred to you as dementing, I had this. The first thing that went through my head was he. They're not supposed to say that. That's very you know, um, it, it's not politically correct to say someone is, de- yeah, yeah, is dementing. So I thought yeah. that you found the word strange is is very interesting. But did yes. you, so you didn't did you you didn't feel like anybody you know hit you or socked you in the chest or anything when you get this. This dementia diagnosis, because you kind of suspected all along.
4: I I think so. Um, I had read up a lot about it, and I certainly, you know, had uh, many symptoms. And um, uh, you know, also if I had any doubts, um, you know, my neuropsychological <laughs> test showed that I had dropped twenty IQ points since I was a, a young a student. Uh, so, you know, you know that something is wrong. But also for me, it's odd because I'm I'm still well-functioning in some things. Uh, for example, I can still speak and, you know, sometimes I can't think of the word or I, um, you know, but, but I can usually still manage speaking. But I'm really lost in the world of things because I, um, you know, I just can't get things done. And that is... That is how, you know, I was, I was teaching at the University of Utah and I was uh, the Associate Director of the Gender sti- Studies Program. And it seemed that a job that, you know, I'd been in that particular job for 10 years and I pretty much knew my way around the job and it just became harder and harder. So I, I, the fact that the name that came out um, in my diagnosis was dementia was like almost coincidental because I had no doubt that there was something wrong with me uh, in my ability to function. You know, I mean, it could have been, you know, if somebody said brain tumor, I think it would have been a big shock because I had not really thought uh, in that direction. But um, because of my family experience with my mother, you know, it it did not. It was not a word that made no sense to
0: me. Well, at the time, you 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 get the diagnosis, uh, and, and this is a few years ago. Uh,
4: I'm, I'm sorry, Ron. I I cannot hear you. I can hear Carol very well. Well,
2: well, we'll have Carol
4: talk to all you. All right,
2: then. then. Yes, I I will ask the question. So, yeah,
4: um, I'm sorry, how, Ron.
2: So, how long has it been um, since you've had this diagnosis uh, and that you've been living with dementia?
4: It's been six years now, and I'm actually so grateful and astonished that I am still doing so well in uh, in some respects. But it has been six years of uh, a definitely a downward slipping um, in the things that I could do six years ago and cannot do now at all. Um, but I've I've just been I'm so fortunate that i have a family who is incredibly supportive my children are enormously supportive my husband helps me every day with so many things and and even though it seems to me you know on the scale of things that these are still smaller things that i need his help with it still already takes so many hours of his day you know just he helped me get this phone call set up and he helped me with everything, and when I dialed, I just could not dial the right number. And in the end, he just—I gave him the phone, and he dialed the number for me. So in little things like that, it just—it goes on on and on throughout the day. So that I think both of us are a little bit uh, exhausted from me asking him for help and and you know and me feeling confused by the end of the day um but anyway we're doing very very well all over
2: well have have you had to learn to be very forgiving of yourself so that you don't feel frustrated
4: i try very hard um i i have a a kind of (laughs) um I have this thing that when I can't get something done, I just knock myself on the head with my fist, you know, not hard enough to injure me, but it's just something that, you know, I almost automatically do. And then I get frustrated. And then I say to myself, you can only do what you can do. And I just stand quietly and and try to just, you know, calm myself down. Um, But I do get very frustrated. And... Um, Peter and I went to Las Vegas this past weekend uh, which is kind of an odd thing to do you might think but um, for me Las Vegas has become a, a place of real um, relaxation because I can have independence there that I don't have at home we stay in a hotel um, on this trip and I like to just walk by myself like in a shopping mall because if I i can't walk in the streets because i get lost so i have a walkway across the street from there into the shopping mall and so i can come and go from my from our hotel room um you know peter's taught me the route and i practice it every time we go and i can get there and back without without his help so in a way I'm, i'm i'm getting to a story of of my hidden stress but I was happier and more independent, and he was getting a break. And yet that night, I had a dream that I was I was just lying somewhere in a pink dress. Maybe it's the shopping that made me think made me wear that dress. But that I was lying there and just crying. And Peter was trying to explain to me that I was supposed to be um, honored. You know, I was going to get some award from a. a from a neighborhood organization and that I was supposed to be there and go on the stage and I didn't know where the stage was and, and I dreamt that I just cried and cried and said to him, I'm really, really trying. I really am not deliberately messing this up and, and you know, having to have your help now to get me from where I'm lost to where I'm supposed to be. And, and I think that dream reflects that my my subconscious is dealing with this anxiety of you know of being dependent on other people. Because I've, so many times I do things wrong before I finally get them right. And sometimes I don't get them right, and somebody else has to help me.
0: We changed microphones, and I'm hoping you can hear, oh, hear me can a little better. Oh, I hear you perfectly now, well, Ron. Right. Cool. Thank you. Curtis Saunders is with us. Stay with us just a minute on Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerner. This is an incredible story, and we thank you again so much for sharing. a.m., the answer is where you find us. Podcasts of our shows are available as well. Just Google, well, Caregiver SOS on air or go to caregiversos.org, and you'll find the podcast. It's hard to believe, but this all began in the year 2010.
3: Has it really been that long that we've been together? Dr. Robin
0: Eikhoff, Ron Aaron, WellMed Radio.
3: What a terrific ride it's been.
0: And since then, and continuing, we have talked about everything.
3: We've talked about medical issues, we've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on.
0: You name a disease, and we've covered it, but with answers for people who have it, aimed primarily at seniors and their loved
3: ones. Seniors and caregivers and grandchildren and on and on. So why do you like doing radio?
0: This is a fascinating conversation. Listening as we are to Herta Saunders and her experience uh, with vascular dementia, diagnosed six years ago, uh, dealing with it now and, and dealing with the challenges that it presents to she and her husband Peter. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernial and Herta. That, that was a really incredible uh, story you told us right before uh, we broke for the news, and you were talking about uh, the dream you had and and how. Overwhelming that was. Uh, w- when you told your husband about it, w- what was his response?
4: Um, he is, as always, very um, sympathetic and empathetic, and he tells me he tells me that he understands that I can't do these things, and you know that that he's happy to help me. But I know that you know I know that it. Bothers him that I that I that I'm stressed about it, and um, but something very interesting happened too because um, we hardly ever remember our dreams or tell each other about them. But um, about two nights later, he had a dream too that that seemed to me uh, to be dealing with something that he's struggling with, and he just dreamt that. He was supposed to be in a job, and we both retired. And that he did not know, you know, where anything was or what he was supposed to do. And he just felt like he was very frustrated, sort of trading water and not knowing where he was going. And although he did not directly bring it into relation with um, with me, uh, more you know the the the. Uh, what you have to do to adapt to retiring and to working within a in your own schedule and so on. I think for him it's related more to that. But I think it did show me that he also has an underlying stress that is not unrelated to my dementia, even if it's not the whole cause of his stress. So... Um, so it was interesting that both of us had that reaction <laughs> in, in, in our subconscious. Right. Um,
2: well, um, talk, yeah. talk a little bit about, so you've written a book, Memory's yes. Last Breath. So what, how difficult was that um, to pull together your book um, with some of the memory problems that you have? I, I, my understanding is some of it was okay and then some of it was more challenging. So how did, how did that come about?
4: Um, I when when I retired from my um, position at the university my colleagues at the gender studies program gave me a beautiful leather bound journal and I, I thought that I would write down just some of my experiences of things that go wrong in my day or sometimes things that are funny because at this stage I still you know I can still see when I do something that's funny and I I can laugh about it, and, you know, I write them down, and my family laughs with me. I, uh, they, they, uh, they're the kind of family who not only laughs with me but laugh at me. And um, although people say you shouldn't do that, I love it that they do that because it means they believe that I can still bring out my sense of humor and laugh at something that was clearly funny um, in a situation. This one example is that uh, we were at dinner, and... Um, I was looking for a washcloth to wipe my then three-year-old grandson's face, which was full of food, and I got distracted. And when I saw him, I was wiping my nine-year-old grandson's face, and he kind of played along and pulled funny faces, and everybody noticed that (laughs) except me. And then when I saw everybody laughing, I realized, and, I mean, you cannot say that that's not funny. (laughs) Um, But anyway, so things like that I would write down in my journal. And I I didn't think I would write a book, but, you know, uh, since I have written before, I think in my subconscious I must have known that I was serving, preserving these moments for later. So then um, after I retired and I had rested some because I was so exhausted after my last year of working, um, so I rested for actually a few months before I could even think of writing. And my my goal for retirement was really to complete two novels into which I had already put a lot of work. But the minute I looked at that, I realized I, I couldn't do it. It was just it was too big. I couldn't pull the ends together. So I just thought, well, I'll just write an essay. And then I started using my notes from my notebook, and I just started writing, you know, more about my feelings about it because in my notebook I really just wrote what happened? Without trying to interpret or to comment or to say, you know, if I was very sad, I might say, "Oh, I was crying" or something. But mostly not. And so, in this, the first essay, I started addressing. So, what is what does this do about me? About who I am? You know, from being a very capable and and productive person to being someone who just can't, you know, can't do. One task with all the steps in succession, and that is really so that led to an essay and then when that was done, I managed another essay and as long as in my head I thought it's just an essay and they did in my mind they were not connected, so I didn't have to you know pull this thread over a longer book uh, and so that's how I wrote a number of essays that then seemed eventually to you know, um, I put them together for a long essay in in a in the Georgia Review, and then the online magazine Slate republished it. And then I got an agent, and she saw that with some more work, I could make I could make a narrative arc for the book. You know, sort of more of a whole story and the story of my life in many ways than just separate essays. And I could not have done it without her because I could not think that broadly. But she helped me incredibly with literally telling me, after this paragraph, write a little bit about this, um, because I I could not do that. So um, a lot of what you see in the book and, you know, the way the story flows is really thanks to my agent and then my writing friends who read that manuscript probably 20 times each to two friends. So that is how the book came together.
0: Let me take just a moment to remind folks who may have just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, <laughs> The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron along with Carol Zerniel and we were talking on the Caregiver SOS On Air hotline out in Utah with uh, Herda Saunders, uh, Memories Last Breath, uh, fabulous New York Times book review that talks about uh, how much the author of that book review enjoyed Uh, reading your story Uh, and one of the things he talks about is uh, how what you really don't want to happen is just to have you just waste away, be gone
4: Yes I I don't want to and I think most of us don't want to think about a time when we when our minds are no longer working and our bodies are still sort of going along and for me life is about self determination. And I understand that no single person in the world is self determined. You need other people, and other people need you. But with dementia, uh, my experience in seeing other people and hearing other people's stories is that the person with dementia really becomes. Um, just like a bundle of dependence, in a way, like a little baby, but without the charm of a little baby. Um, you know, with a baby, it's not only the charm, but it is the fact that that baby has a future, and that is why it is such a pleasure to put energy into into that helpless being's future. But when it's the reverse, for me to think that my whole family will exhaust themselves and, um, you know, suffer more of the caregiver strains than they already do. Um, It is just an idea that does not, for me, um, it does not square for me with what I, how I look at life. And I want them to live their lives to the fullest. And no matter with how much love they will look after me, which I know they will do, I do not want to ask that of them. Um, so, I our family has spoken a lot about it, and we hope to be able to get an a legal assisted suicide for me when the time comes. And I know, um, I, I think you, especially Carol, who've worked with people uh, with dementia, and I believe your mother too uh, had dementia. I. I know that you, how can you say when that time has come and so what I did is I I spoke to we, to my children and my family and we've actually spoken about this for years we've always at different times in our lives we stopped to have a conversation about is this is what we're doing a worthwhile life is being too busy what are we being too busy for? Is it Do we really value the things that we are working so hard for, or do we, would we value maybe working a little bit less and enjoying more of each other and we 've always talked about those kinds of thoughts. so for my children, it was not out of the blue when when I spoke to them and said you know this, these are a few conditions for me of when I still think my life is worthwhile you know can I still is there a bigger part of the day that in, I enjoy than that I'm miserable or complaining or crying or fearful? Um, so that's one question. And another question is, um, um, sorry, I, I lost track of what I wanted to say. But so we 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 basically drew up a list of question of of questions for them, or I did, and um, discussed it with them and. So that they all felt that, that for themselves, they would want that for themselves. They would not want to continue living beyond a point. For example, one of my other things was, do I sleep most of the time? Uh, do, I, do I recognize my children or grandchildren? I mean, my standard for a worthwhile life, life is not all that high. I'm not thinking that it has necessarily has to be an intellectual life, but... Do I have joy in another body? So can, a gra- can I hold a grandchild on my lap? And they enjoy it, and I enjoy it. When nothing of that is left anymore, I question, I, I don't question, I know that I would not want to live anymore. But when, of you, an, yeah?
0: when you reach that point, and we only have about a minute left. Sure. When you yeah. reach that point, do you think you will be cognizant of reaching that point? where you faculties be enough and there uh, so that you can say okay here we are
4: i fear that i will reach a point where i can no longer do that and that will probably um you know inspire me or push me to ask for this sooner than i might have hung on but for me that is acceptable and also i you know If my children, I've told all of them, if they feel they can do this for me, I would be very grateful. And right now at the moment, the only way I could do it legally is to go to Europe. But if they feel they cannot do that, and if if it really is against their ethical feeling at the time, although now they say they can do it, I ask them just not to interfere with the others who remain remain feeling that they can do it for me. And if... Um, But if I never do it, I probably won't know any better.
0: Unfortunately, we are flat out of time. We need to get you back on and continue uh, this conversation. It it is just amazing. And I want to thank you, and I know Carol thanks you for uh, being so open and and willing to share your experience. And we certainly wish you the very best and uh, a big hug to Peter.
4: Thank you so much, and thank you very, very much. I've really enjoyed your questions and the conversation.
0: Thanks. Thank you. Take care.
4: Thank you. Goodbye. Curtis
0: Saunders and uh, dealing with dementia, powerful stuff.
4: Yeah. Wow. Abs-
2: amazing.
0: Take 10 is next, right here on 930 AM, The Answer on Caregiver SOS On Air with Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel. It's hard to believe, but this all began in the year 2010.
3: Has it really been that long that we've Dr. been together? Dr. Robin
0: Eickhoff, Ron Aaron, Med Radio.
3: What a terrific ride it's been.
0: And since then, and continuing, we have talked about everything.
3: We've talked about medical issues, we've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on.
0: You name a disease, and we've covered it, uh, with answers for people who have it, aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones.
3: Seniors and caregivers and grandchildren and on and on.
0: It's time for Take 10. We follow each of our Caregiver SOS on-air programs with Take 10. Dr. Jamie Heisman joins us, a nationally known psychotherapist and expert on addictions and caregiving. And our regular co-host, Carol Zerniel, is here as well. I'm Ron Aaron. You hear us at 930 a.m., The Answer. And, Carol, next topic.
2: Well, You know, it's a new year, so I was thinking about new caregivers, and wouldn't it be nice to talk about things that maybe people who are just realizing that they're a caregiver, they're new to the game, new to the journey, um, what would, you know, the three of us want them to know about caregiving what have we learned from other caregivers that they might benefit from so that they start off on the best foot possible so i'm going to let jamie go first so jamie what's the number one thing you would tell a new caregiver
1: well, that's almost not fair because you know my number one thing is actually the probably number four thing. I think there's four steps with caregiving, a new care, being a new caregiver, and I'll start with just one. Um, you know, the most important thing is to get your both feet on the ground and and have good information and good concept. And I think a family caregiver, when they become a new caregiver, has to start with a diagnosis, a real diagnosis. That, if something's going on with your loved one, you know, whether it's medical or it's neurological, or forgetful or things are going down the, you know, a, a kind of a, a a trail that you know is not right, um, you have to go get a good diagnosis. You well, have to really immediately get a doctor uh, to see your loved one and get a second opinion if necessary.
2: And And that sounds so obvious. And yet there are a lot of families out there that don't really want to know. They don't want to hear the bad news. Uh, they don't want to have confirmation that their worst fears are confirmed, and so there are families out there that would rather operate in yeah. the dark than get that diagnosis. But you're so right. You know, you're 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 going with one hand and maybe both eyes closed um, when you don't have a, a diagnosis.
1: Really, because knowing your loved one's diagnosis <laughs> helps you plan realistically. If you can't start it, if you can't name it and claim it from the beginning you're going to be all over the place. You have to learn as much as you can about your family member's condition. And and this information, um, you know, will confirm that you're not imagining things and it'll give you along with your primary doctor or your specialist or whomever you're seeing, it will give you a game plan, a game plan to how to deal with this diagnosis so that you feel going into this, you're not going to lose control, not only over your behavior, but your loved one's behavior. And there's so many books and video classes that are available once you get this diagnosis from from so many, you know, disease uh, foundations out there.
2: Well, so, oh, go ahead. I was just going to let him go on to two, three, and four. I was going to say four. one or two, yeah, three well, curious, right. two, three, and four. Yeah, you might as well because now I'm curious. What's two, three, and four? So one is the diagnosis.
4: Fourth
1: one <laughs> the fourth one you'll always know is going to come from me. But these are really realistic things. And, then the, and the second one is this. you have to talk to your loved one. You have to be realistic and talk to your loved one about you know, the real issues at hand, finances and health care wishes and things like that. A durable power of attorney um, for the finances and for health care and, and assist them, maybe finding a geriatric care manager because they have to deal with their chronic or terminal illness and have to understand that they're emotionally probably uh, up, up in the air and, and somewhat unstable. Uh, you have to bring in an elder law specialist to help draw up the documents. I think that this type of planning, if you're a new caregiver, can relieve immediate anxiety and make you prepared for the future.
2: Well, I think that, you know, that would probably be at the top of my list as well, because so many families wait too late to get those powers of attorney when someone isn't, you know, well enough or competent enough to fill out the documents, you know, it's too late. When mom or dad can't sign their name anymore, you've waited too long. And you missed the window. And so, you know, and the the sooner you can have that discussion, maybe have a family meeting, I think if you're going to spend any money you know spend it up front just like you said jamie i would hire that elder law attorney to drop all the documents and and, and be that impartial third party to you know, with the family to say this is what's going to happen legally and i would hire that geriatric care manager just to say okay i've got a diagnosis i've got these documents i need a broad map you know what? What help me what plan do? the next few steps, or the beginning, middle, and what we think is the end, and just kind of lay things out. I think that's money well spent.
1: Yeah, if you're a quarterback and you don't have ten people on the field that you're throwing that ball for or blocking for you, uh, you're going to lose the game, and and so it's it's critical for you to as a quarterback, to be able to facilitate and get these professionals in place. Now, there is a bunch going into it, which is the the next step, really, that that goes into making sure your loved one is feeling also lockstep with you and, and, and is actually not pulling away from you or pushing back. And so the step three piece is invite your family and close friends to come together and discuss your loved one's care and be able to game plan, if you will, Um, support meetings with them and then you know me I'm always going to tell you at that point in time get that geriatric care manager involved or social worker involved because you never know how the information is received and often as we say the caregiver can get killed and the primary caregiver is always best to focus on accepting this assistance from others because we've got this terrible Superman or superwoman sort of feeling about ourselves and, and it always makes us feel less than when we're not that super
2: person and that's really important. That's something that I have learned from you about not being the messenger or you know, just like you know, we can tell our kids, hey, go to bed at eight o'clock and they're like, Whatever. Yeah, it doesn't work. It <laughs> doesn't work. I but, can guarantee but that. If the babysitters comes in and says, Go to bed at eight o'clock, they're like, Oh, I better go to bed. I mean, they'll listen to someone else where they won't listen to you baby sister, um, about what's going on.
0: You've been at our house lately. <laughs> that's there? exactly right. So, yeah, yeah
1: so you're so, dealing with children.
0: Yeah, it's not different.
1: Well, yeah, and you know, and <laughs> it's it, no different. And people
2: who think they're adults are even worse to deal with. Yeah. So it's you know that that impartial that third party um, is really really important. So I think those are, are great
1: steps. Do not go it alone. I am telling you. Over the last, you know, you and I probably together have. I hate to say this, I and mean, I love to say, it, I'm grateful at least 50, 60 years of work in this field, and we have seen it we have seen it so often. Don't go it alone. There are some wonderful resources out there. You, again, you can go to psychologytoday.com, put your zip code in and look for somebody skilled in geriatric care. They, they're not expensive and often insurance will help pay for it.
2: Right. And, uh, you know, uh, when you give out that website, my come back is always the um, website to find the area agency on aging in your area yep. which is also one of the first places I would call because they're tasked with keeping a listing you know an inventory of all the caregiving services all the services for seniors if you're caring for someone who's a senior in their service area so if you go to right. eldercare.gov just eldercare.gov same thing Put in your zip code, and you will get your local area agency on aging. Everyone has one, whether you know it or not. And they're can, they can tell you, this is what we have, this is what we don't have. And at least you know.
0: And there's no cost.
2: And and there's no cost for that phone call and to get that information. And there may even be no cost for some of the services. You never know. You're
0: listening to Take 10 on Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. Ron Aaron along with Dr. Jamie Heisman and Carol Zerniel. Jamie, you're up.
1: Well, I like to tell you, now we've finally gotten to my step four. (laughs) And you know what it's going to be. Take your oxygen first. I mean, finding support for yourself. I would say that first. But to be perfectly blunt with you, I think all those critical, logistical, reality-based interventions need to happen if you're a new caregiver. But by all means, this is not in any order of importance, because I believe that taking advantage of community resources, such as support groups, um, and and moving yourself connected to, to other people, and taking care of your own mind, your own body, your own soul, having your own therapist, making sure you're seeing your own primary care doctor to look at issues because caregiving can be medically challenging and it, we know it's psychologically challenging. So make sure you put something in what I call the spiritual or psychological bank so that when these kind of things pop up and you know Murphy's law with caregiving it's always going to pop up, you have somewhere to go which is really your your own mental health.
2: Well, I think it's a great time if you're a new caregiver to make it a habit to take care of yourself to set aside some time for you to just put that in the daily plan and hang on to it for all you can as long as you can because you know those that just throw themselves into caregiving first thing you know it's a marathon it's not a sprint Uh, and then they've got nothing left at the end and
0: remember caregiversos.org for all kinds of resources and caregiver teleconnection as well
2: well, we've got great okay. programs at the WellMed Charitable Foundation. So you you got my last line there was, don't forget about caregiversos.org. All of the WellMed Charitable Foundation resources can be found on our website.
0: Out of time, Jamie.
2: Hey, hey. Hang
0: on.
1: Oh, I'm just going to say I believe in what she's doing. And if you're in Texas, take advantage of those resources. Run, do not walk.
0: And I think the Internet is worldwide, so you can go to that website. Dr. Jamie Heisman, Carol Zerniel, I'm Ron Aaron. Thanks for listening to Take 10 on Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air